The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon, The Fifth Seal, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. So we come to this text now in Revelation chapter 6. The Lord Jesus Christ has prevailed. Upon his victory at Calvary, having been triumphantly raised from the dead, having conquered both sin and the grave, the Lord has ascended bodily into heaven where he rules at the right hand of the majesty. He has taken the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. He has begun to execute the decrees now that are written in it concerning these last days, days characterized by the persecution and suffering of the Lord's church as she carries out her mission in a hateful world, and days in which many over the breadth of the earth suffer the plagues that are symbolized by the four horsemen in Revelation chapter 6. Plagues that will only serve to harden and to punish those who dwell upon the earth, while at the very same time, they are plagues that serve to refine and to purify God's elect as they persevere through much tribulation before they enter the consummated kingdom. Now, as we've seen so far in our study of Revelation, in our consideration of the four horsemen and the breaking now of the first four seals, this period of tribulation that extends between the Lord's first advent Uh, Until his return, this period is characterized by false religion, characterized by satanic counterfeits of the truth, false Christs, false brothers, false teachers, false churches. It is an age that's marked symbolically by the sword, and in reality, marked by people killing one another, often at alarming rates and often with astonishing brutality. So we talked about last week in the, the case of worldwide abortion. Uh, There is famine and scarcity around the globe. Ultimately, death, symbolized by the pale horse and its rider. Uh, Death, symbolized by any number of means, murder, famine, pestilence, beasts of the earth. And as we've seen, this language is language that is pulled from the context of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 14. Language in reference to... God's judgment upon the nations who appear to be at ease. Language used to describe his covenant curses that he pours out upon his rebellious people while in their idolatry. And often, as we've discussed on Sunday mornings now in Romans chapter 8, these are simply the realities, uh, for many of us, simply the realities that accompany living in a world uh, in a created order that has been subjected to futility or subjected to the curse of the fall a creation that has been subjected to the burden or the weight of man's sin. Christians, the Lord's church, we're not exempt from such tribulation. We're not exempt from this adversity, from this difficulty. We're not swept up into heaven and relieved of going through these difficulties or this tribulation ourselves. The church, God's people, have always, always in their history persevered through tribulation. The church has always endured through tribulation. It is a testimony to the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that the church endures well persecution and adversity, tribulation. And on the contrary, rather than being relieved from going through that tribulation, we're giving, given good and godly reasons for it. 
There are good purposes, glorifying aims that God has for putting us through, as it were, taking us through, carrying us through suffering. The momentary and light afflictions of this present age producing for us a far greater weight of eternal glory in the life which is to come. So whether we face tribulation or suffering adversity from within the church, like Ephesus or like Pergamos or like Thyatira, or whether we face adversity from outside the church, like Smyrna or like Philadelphia, we are tasked with overcoming. We are a people tasked, charged with being a faithful and persevering witness, a faithful and persevering light for Jesus Christ in the midst of a dark and faithless world. Now, the four horsemen in Revelation chapter 6 essentially describe or define the battlefield on which we find ourselves as we wage our holy warfare in our own generation. As Jesus Christ walks in the midst of the lampstands, uh, caring for his church, the four horsemen really picture the context in which we battle. They really picture the conditions on the ground, as it were, as the church goes through tribulation and as God pours out his wrath. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, his wrath already being presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it's through this means, as it were, that we are encouraged then to persevere to the end. It's through this that we must persevere, to look to Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross before he entered into his glory. Now that brings us this evening, that context brings us to the fifth seal that we find in Revelation chapter 6, and that fifth seal having to do with the perspective of God's people from heaven. Look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, the Lord Jesus Christ is opening or loosing the seals. And when he opened the fifth seal, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Now the fifth seal represents the decree of God concerning the vindication of God's people who have suffered at the hands of the wicked. Ultimately, it's a vindication of God's own name, God's own glory, God's own deliverance. Think with me now. The Apostle John, where is he as he writes this text? The Apostle John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. The Apostle John has been persecuted for his faith. He refers to himself in, in one chapter 1, verse 9, as our brother and our companion in tribulation. He has been unjustly persecuted for his faith. So as John writes, you can imagine with me, as he writes, having been unjustly exiled for his own witness, for the word of God and for his testimony, the testimony which he held, he sees or he has a vision of these souls under the altar crying out to God, Oh Lord, how long? How long before you vindicate our blood on those, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So John, you could say, is with them as they cry to the Lord. We're with them as we pray to the Lord as well. He sees them there as we do, persecuted saints beneath the altar in the heavenly throne room in front of the ark of the testimony in the holy place before the throne of God. That's where they are. They're in the holy place or in the temple. There were two altars. There was an altar of sacrifice 
You might see it in Scripture as the altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense. What we see here referenced in verses 9 to 11 is the altar of incense. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. This is a reference to the altar of incense. And Moses, Exodus chapter 30, has been instructed to make a copy, as it were, of the pattern that he was shown on the mountain. He is to make this altar. And in chapter 30, verse 6, the Lord says to Moses, you shall put it, you shall put the altar of incense before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Now think about the position of this altar of incense. Uh, It's not in the outer court or not before the court. It's in the holy place. It's before the veil. It's before the ark of the testimony, near the mercy seat, where God meets with Moses in the tabernacle of meeting face to face. Verse 7. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps, and he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it. So morning and night, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So morning and night, he's going to burn incense. Remember, these things are types and shadows. So think, think with me, what do the lampstands represent? We know this from Revelation 1 through 3. They represent the churches. The lampstands represent the churches. What do the lights atop the lampstands represent? God's people who shine as lights in the firmament, right? Who win souls. These lights sit atop the lampstands, and Aaron is shown burning incense before the lamps, morning and night, tending to the lamps and tending to the lights. Verse 9. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. In other words, Aaron is going to sanctify this altar once a year with the blood of atonement, blood that would come from the altar of sacrifice, right? And we know from, again, types and shadows in the Old Testament, that that altar of sacrifice, a picture of the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Passover. He is the atoning sacrifice. The blood of the sacrifice was taken from the altar of sacrifice and sprinkled upon the altar of incense to atone for it per se, or to sanctify it once per year. And then what does the incense represent? What do we know from our understanding of the New Testament, in particular, our understanding of Revelation, what does the incense represent? Represents the prayers of the saints. I remember Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. The four living creatures each have a bowl full of incense, which symbolize the prayers of the saints. Keep all of that in mind now and turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. I want us to see this picture and where this is coming from and how we're to understand what's going on here. Revelation chapter 8, look there at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. And again, this is the altar of incense. He was given much 
incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, think with me now, he filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it to the earth and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now notice with me, first, what is it that precedes the sounding of the trumpets? What is it that is seen as initiating the judgments that the trumpets represent? It's the burning of the incense, the prayers of the saints. The incense representing the prayers of the saints ascending to God. It even says in Revelation chapter 8 that he burnt incense on the altar and the prayers of the saints ascended with the incense before the throne of God. And all of that precedes the judgments of the trumpets, the prayers of the saints seen as initiating or preceding the sounding of the trumpets. So think with me now. Our prayers are seen as ascending to heaven in the smoke of the incense. That's what that Old Testament picture in Exodus 30, that's what that's picturing. Picturing the prayers of the saints ascending to God in the smoke of the incense. That's a type, and we see the anti-type now in heaven. We see the pattern that Moses was making that altar after. As those prayers ascending to heaven in the smoke of the incense, and as our prayers ascend, Aaron the high priest then walks in the midst of the lampstands and tends to the lights. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our great high priest, Aaron the high priest in the Old Testament, our great high priest tends to the lamps, tends to the lights, tends to the lampstands as incense is burnt upon the altar and ascends to God before the throne. It's a picture of our prayers going up before God as the Lord Jesus Christ himself walks in the midst of the churches and tends to us and mediates for us and intercedes for us. You see, it's a beautiful picture of Christ's intercession. A beautiful picture. Our prayers, brothers and sisters, joined together with the cry of those who are under the altar. Our prayers joined with theirs. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Those Christians who had already been persecuted, those Christians already oppressed, already killed for their faith, are described here in Revelation 6, 9 as souls who have been slain. Now there is an allusion here in in verse 9. There's a reference to the altar. In a reference to the altar, there is an allusion of both prayer and sacrifice. That's why the altar of incense is referenced, and that's why they're referred to as having been slain. There's a reference to both prayer and sacrifice. They're described as souls because they have been slain. They've been separated from their body. Right? They're in the intermediate state, as it were. And that slaying is described as being for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, a testimony to Jesus Christ. Why were they slain? They were slain for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ which they held. That's similar to the language, if you will, of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Christians are those who give themselves as living sacrifices on the altar of God. 
which Paul describes there as their reasonable service. And they were persecuted and they were slain for it. In this, they're not unlike their savior, are they? They're not unlike John, who in chapter one, verse nine, describes himself as our brother and our companion is in tribulation. But not unlike their savior, whom John beheld as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I think that's the, the main point of referring to them or describing to us, uh, them to us as those who have been slain. The main purpose of describing them that way is to identify them with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are his, and in that sense, for their testimony, for the word of God, they're described as slain. It's a way of identifying them with Jesus. That's interesting that they're described as being under the altar instead of upon the altar. Did you recognize that? That's interesting, isn't it? It makes more sense when we consider the significance of this particular altar. Now think with me, atonement, an atoning sacrifice was made on the altar of sacrifice, the altar of burnt offering. And that was situated in the courtyard. Before you even came into the holy place, there was a sacrifice made to atone for sin. A sacrifice or burnt offering that was made to atone for sin. It's there in that, that altar, the altar of sacrifice, where Jesus Christ is pictured in the sacrifices. That blood then, the blood that was shed on the altar of sacrifice, was brought and then sprinkled upon this altar, the altar of incense, and that once per year to sanctify this altar. An altar, this altar, that was situated before the mercy seat at the ark of the testimony in the presence of God. That's where this altar was situated. In other words... This altar signifies the mediation of Jesus Christ rather than the atoning work of Christ. Where the altar of sacrifice pictures is a type of the mediation of Christ and his atoning work on Calvary, this altar signifies the mediation of Christ, his intercession, Christ's living intercession for believers who are covered by the blood of his atoning sacrifice and safe within the refuge of his work on their behalf. In other words, under the mediation, as it were, of Christ. This altar, as it were, stands between those people who had been slain and God. And it's on this altar that we see the incense being burnt and raised, those prayers raised to God in the smoke of the incense. It's a picture, if you will, of the mediation of Christ, Jesus Christ in his own mediation coming between the sinner and God, even in their prayer. Even the incense was to be burnt with a fire that was to be brought from the sacrifice, the altar of sacrifice. If you read that in Exodus chapter 30, even the incense was to be burned with that fire from the burnt offering. Every sacrifice, as it were, everything covered, as it were, by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. These souls represent those who are persecuted on the earth. They have been slain, separated from their physical bodies, and now with the rest of the saints in heaven, they await the revealing of the sons of God at their glorified state. They're seen as crying out in prayer. And as they do, they are covered by Christ's own intercession on their behalf. They are under the altar of incense, their prayers ascending into heaven with the sweet incense of Christ's own mediation. Do you think that God hears those prayers? Right? If you think, think with me for a moment, the prayers of God's people that ascend into heaven on the smoke of the incense, as it were, smelling with the sweetness of Christ's 
own intercession. Do you think that God hears those prayers? Absolutely he does. They're being offered up in the mediation of Jesus Christ himself. God considers them, often we hear that in the Old Testament. Here, we see it again. He considers them a sweet-smelling aroma, a sweet smell that rises into the nostrils of God in heaven. Now, there's a reason given for their death in verse 9. They were slain, one, for the word of God, two, for the testimony which they held. And again, we see their, their fellowship here with John, our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, highlighted. Chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion. It means fellow partaker. That John is our fellow partaker in the tribulation. Wait a minute, I thought the tribulation was some far off distant future time of trouble at the very end that only a certain group of people alive at that time are going to go. No. John in the first century, at the end of the first century, he's saying, I am your brother and companion, fellow partaker in the tribulation, in the tribulation period. Again, it's a period that we currently find ourselves in now. The church goes through this period. She goes through her tribulation. He is our brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. He was on the island that is called Patmos because of the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The same two terms. Now, these are the reasons why John has been exiled. And these are the reasons why these under the altar have been slain why tribulation saints have been slain. And again, I would submit to you, these are the reasons for which we must persevere even to our own death. We are called to persevere during our time of tribulation, during this period, period of great tribulation, we are to persevere even to the point of our own death for one, the word of God, and for the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're called, as John was called, as these saints were called, to persevere in faithfulness as a faithful, persevering witness, even to our own death for the word of God and for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in this way that we have fellowship together. We have fellowship with John. That's why John can say, I am your companion, your brother and fellow partaker of tribulation. When we share in persecution, when we persevere through adversity because of the word of God and because of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, we share companionship, fellowship with the apostle John. But not only the apostle John, we share that fellowship with all the saints who have gone before us who also died, who also lived, persevered through tribulation for the word of God and for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with those who cry out from under the altar and we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul refers to it as the fellowship of his sufferings, which there's a sweetness in that nomenclature, that language. Paul counted all other things lost and then prayed in Philippians chapter three, verse nine, listen. He prayed that he may be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, so that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul wanted fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering. I would submit to you, when we persevere under difficulty, when we persevere through persecution for the word of God and for the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, we share fellowship together with him. We share fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We share fellowship with the Apostle John. We share fellowship with those saints under the altar who have been slain. In other words, 
In other words, fellowship isn't merely hanging out on a Sunday afternoon after church. That's not all that fellowship is. That's not all that Christian fellowship is. There should be a substance to our fellowship that goes beyond a common location that we share on a Sunday morning. In other words, our fellowship has a substance to it, should have a substance to it. Our fellowship should include the word of God and the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, that should be the substance of our fellowship. When we fellowship with that as our center, with that as the substance, truly our fellowship is with one another and with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that in order to have fellowship with Jesus Christ and those who are his, that we're going to be exiled like John. It doesn't mean that in order to have fellowship, we're going to be slain like many others or crucified like the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I believe the use of the word slain here is a way of identifying the Lord's people with the Lord himself. In the words of Paul from Romans chapter 8, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we're going to get there, we are killed all day long. He says that we are killed all day long. We are led all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. What does Paul mean by that? We've given up our lives for Jesus Christ. We've given up our lives for the sake of his body, the church. Paul is saying we are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in his own life, in his own death. We have fellowship with him in that. What is it? What is the substance of that which we share in common? What is it? Persecution for the word of God and persecution for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we hold. That's what we share in common. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, John describes tribulation saints as those persecuted, even slain for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. For the martyria, that word, for the martyria, it's where we get our word martyr from. It means witness. When we translate that, rather than transcribe that, means witness. It, it refers to the testimony, the testimony that we give. In other words, bear no testimony, suffer no persecution, and no fellowship. But if you open your mouth in this world that is hostile toward Jesus Christ, with a testimony of Jesus Christ, or with a testimony of the word of God, it may not be exile, it may not be death, but you will suffer persecution. And in that, all saints have fellowship. We share fellowship together with John, our brother and companion in tribulation. We share fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in his own death. Engage in the work, in other words, get in the fight. And we have fellowship with these slain saints under the altar. Make sense? It's our way of being identified with them. What is it that we share in common? We share in common a persecution for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, which we hold. We are buried with him into death. We learned that in Romans chapter six. The call to discipleship, the call to discipleship is a call to come and die. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, the Lord says himself. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, we're daily to die. We are daily those who are slain for his sake. With Paul, we are daily killed all day long. We are led as sheep for the slaughter. And in that, brothers and sisters, we have true fellowship with him and true fellowship with all the saints. We have fellowship with those who are under the altar crying out to the Lord, how long? For all of those, for all of those, there will 
come a day of vindication. There will come a day when God's name is vindicated, when God avenges our blood on those who have persecuted us on the earth, those who dwell on the earth. Our labor is never in vain in the Lord. Verse 10, they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. This is no prayer for base revenge. This isn't revenge here. There's no room for that. This is a prayer for vindication. God is Lord over all the earth. God here is described as holy and true. He is the one who judges in righteousness, establishes the land by justice, and yet the wicked continue to blaspheme, don't they? And they continue to persecute his people. And isn't this our prayer? Can't we find ourselves, can't you relate to this prayer from these saints under the altar? Lord, how long? Come quickly. Put an end to this nonsense, right? This, this wickedness that is taking place on the earth. Lord, they blaspheme your name. They persecute your people. They deride everything that we hold dear. Lord, how long? How long? They're crying out to the Lord for vindication. Isn't this our prayer too? When you see everything that we value assaulted by this wicked world, Jesus Christ himself, even ourselves, derided hated, scorned, spend a morning out with the folks who go to the abortion mill and see what you see there. How long, oh Lord? Psalm 79, listen to this from Psalm 79, verse one. This is a prayer, this is a biblical prayer. Oh God, the psalmist says, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple, they have defiled. They have come into God's creation, can you see? They have laid Jerusalem in heaps, the dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth, their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations who do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call your name. For they have devoured Jacob. They have laid waste his dwelling place. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging blood of your servants, which has been shed. For your name's sake, O God. A prayer for God to pour out his judgment and vindicate his great name. Habakkuk chapter one, listen. In verse one, the prophet, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, How long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, God answers him. Listen, God answers him. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end, it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. That's a promise to you and I too, right? That promise uh, is still uh, going to be fulfilled by the Lord. This is a promise, again, that the Lord has made to set things right. In Habakkuk chapter 3, then, 
God shows up and he describes what it looks like when he shows up. Verse 12, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in your anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked, laying bare from foundation to neck. Selah. Praise God. Praise God. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Not long now. Not long now. Our salvation nearer than when we first believed. Those who dwell on the earth, it's another way of referring to uh, the wicked, unbelieving world. We'll see that throughout the book of Revelation. Those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth. It's referring to unbelievers. It's this cry from the saints here at the breaking of the fifth seal that then ushers in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the final judgment contained in the sixth seal. We'll see that beginning next week, next time we're together. This cry of the saints, just as it does in Revelation chapter 8, it's this cry of the saints. How long, O Lord? How long? Come, come quickly. It's this cry of the saints that enters the throne room, as it were, on the smoke of incense that then ushers in the final judgment of God and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, we need to be praying these prayers. Right? We need to be praying these prayers. The wicked blaspheme his name every day. There's so much wickedness and godlessness in this world. How long, oh God? How long? For your great name's sake, come and come quickly. Come quickly, set it straight, right? It's this prayer from under the altar that ushers in the final judgment. It's this cry from the saints, the prayers of the saints, that will usher in the final consummation of all things, the judgment of the wicked, the deliverance of God's people. Ultimately, it ushers in the vindication of our God, who is holy and true, who judges in righteousness, right? Luke chapter 18, verse 7. Shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears along with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Until that day comes, people of God are to be encouraged in their waiting. <laughs> We're to be a persevering, waiting enduring testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at that this morning. Romans chapter eight, we see it again here tonight in Revelation chapter six. We're to be a faithful and persevering witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to bear the testimony of the word of God and the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be encouraged until that day comes. Verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them and it was said to them, that they should rest a little while longer, a little while longer, a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. White is symbolic of their purity. It's symbolic of their holiness. How is it that these are considered to be pure and considered to be holy? The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's the only way. We are robed, we are clothed as it were in the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way that we could ever be considered holy or righteous ourselves, right here. They're, they're robed in white. These are those who themselves have been made white in the blood of the lamb. 
It's a symbol, if you will, of their imputed or gifted righteousness, a righteousness that is conferred upon them in their union with Jesus Christ, who is himself our righteousness. To the church at Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, listen. The Lord says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. How is it that they're worthy? They've persevered to the end through faith in Jesus Christ. Are they um, those who have preserved themselves to the end? No, the Lord has preserved them. He's preserved them and found them worthy, persevering to the end. He clothes them in white. Verse five, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Those who are found standing with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at the end Those overcomers will be clothed in white garments. White garments representing the purity, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. These wearing white in Romans chapter six, verse 11, are those who have overcome. They have persevered through persecution for the word of God and for their testimony of Jesus Christ, they've persevered, they have overcome, and now they have entered their rest. They are there before the throne of God under the altar of incense. And they're told to rest a little while longer. How long? A little while longer. Just rest a little while longer. Until all the elect have come in, until the Lord has received the full reward of his suffering, until every one of them, not one of them will be lost. God is long-suffering, patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. Amen? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. This should encourage us, brothers and sisters, to persevere that we may enter that rest. This should encourage us. It should encourage us in how we pray. It should encourage us as we eagerly wait. As we learned in Romans chapter eight this morning and persevere while we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. This should encourage us in our own race as we run. Hebrews chapter four, verse six. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, those disobedient in the wilderness. Again, he designates a certain day in David, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the first fruits of all of those who would be raised in him. So what is the moral of the story? Persevere. Persevere. It won't be long now. It won't be long. Persevere. Just a little while longer. You're, you're robed in white. <laughs> you have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith imputed to you. Wait a little while longer. And while you wait, cry to the Lord. Lord, come, come quickly. Um, persevere, it won't be long now. And be encouraged. Be encouraged that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. 
Uh, the Lord knows what he's doing. He's bringing all of his plans and purposes to a full and final consummation. And he's doing it for the glory of his own name, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll vindicate his people in doing it. Amen? And we can trust him for all of that. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. <laughs> we trust you, Lord. We know that you are faithful to your word. And we know, Lord, that you do not tarry that uh, you're not slack concerning your promise, but that you will pour out your judgments upon the wicked. You will set all things right. You will vindicate your, peop- your people uh, in union with our Lord Jesus Christ. And you will establish a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And we will be in communion with you in all eternity. We praise you and thank you for these glorious promises all that that entails, Lord, and we long for it. We long for the wickedness of this world, the blasphemy of this world to be put down and for your name to be exalted, for your will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven, for you to be magnified and glorified, for our Lord Jesus Christ to be praised and worshiped as he should be. Lord, come quickly, come quickly. Pour out your judgments, set all things right. Raise those who are yours. Establish the kingdom forever, and may you be praised in eternity. We pray all these things in the blessed name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.